Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I was talking yesterday or on Saturday with Nolan Bushnell, who's the founder of Atari. He's been involved in founding, I think something like a hundred companies. You know, I was talking to him and he's like, it is so weird, right? This is the most technical guy on the planet, right? And he's like, I don't program anymore. I don't have to write code anymore. It's all there. I just click it together. What does that mean? Like when you don't have to be like a, a Nolan level technologist to build Nolan level technologies. I mean, that's that's mind blowing. And that's the world that we're moving into. And that's why we've got to have these bigger picture skills. Technology is a democratizing force. And, and what that means is that uh, the capabilities of people at the next level up are suddenly you know, devolved. But that also means that the decision-making skills of kings, you know, of global leaders, they now need to be pushed down you know, deeper into our organizations, deeper into our societies. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Jonathan, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much for having me. I can't wait to get into this. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about uh, you by way of your publicist, and I know that you have a new book out called Rogue Waves, Future Proof Your Business, Survive and Profit from Radical Change, all of which we will get into. But before we do that, I want to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that influenced and shaped what you ended up doing with your life and your career? I've thought a lot about this. I had a difficult relationship with my father. And what I realized, you know, maybe in my 30s was that what he was trying to teach me, the one thing he was trying to teach me was to push harder than I know how to go to new places and to try new things. Uh, and that's driven my life and in a really powerful ways. Mm. I mean, so, you know, specifically like how, you know, did that impact, you know, the choices that you've made, you know, from high school to, you know, college to career and beyond? I, um, that's a great question. Almost everything I've done has been 
moving into a new territory, figuring out what can and can't happen there, rapidly decreasing risk, and helping either organizations I'm leading or organizations that I'm advising do things that wouldn't be possible without that repeated knowledge of walking into the unknown and figuring out how to walk out the other side. Yeah. I mean, did your parents, you know, give you any particular career advice or suggest any career paths? Because, you know, as a joke before, Indian parents were like, all right, what's it going to be, doctor, lawyer, or engineer? Right. Uh, they, they were really open on it, actually. They, they really wanted me to find my own, my own path. Uh, at one point, my father, um, you know, I'd wanted to join my father's business and he wouldn't let me. He wanted me to really find my own way, which I, I think was very powerful. Uh, and they were very open to kind of where I've gone, which is this world of sitting in between strategy uh, and, and enterprise risk management and big picture thinking, being a public intellectual uh, and at the same time getting down on the ground and dirty and and actually building things and, and playing with engineers and scientists and and uh, sitting on manufacturing floors. You know, it's what I do is a, a pretty rare thing, which is helping organizations think about their big picture future, but in ways that really allow them to get down to the granularity of what's actually possible, right? Can we actually, you know, we have this big picture idea of, as executives, but can we actually, you know, implement this, you know, on the shop floor in China in two years, right? What's that? What's that balance between uh, vision and reality? Yeah. Well, and you mentioned that he taught you to push harder than you ever thought you could. And one thing I wonder about that is how much of that do you think is innate and how much of that do you think is something that can be cultivated and learned? Mm. I don't know. I, I feel like he was always concerned uh, that I wouldn't be self-motivated. Um, and when I look inside of large organizations, what I discover is that, you know, a lot of people are externally motivated. I'm, I'm completely driven by my own interests and my own beliefs. And so it's, it's an interesting thing to, to ask about. Um, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I, I think that, uh, pushing in the way that I do certainly creates a lot of personal stress and, and, uh, uh, a lot of unnecessary, you know, pain for me, um, mm -hmm. that, that other people who, who might not be so self-motivated or, or, or is, is highly motivated, um, you know, that they don't have to go through. So, yeah. I, you know, I think there are two answers to the question, right? The first is how do you, um, increase that, that desire, uh, and then the second is, is that a good idea? Mm -hmm. um, it's been a good idea for me. Yeah. I don't know that it's a good idea for everyone. Mm. Well, I, I want to come back to that whole idea of uh, being driven by self-interest. But one thing you you know mentioned also was this idea of venturing into the unknown. And one of the things that I have noticed, you know, as a byproduct of interviewing people on this show, you know, through my own creative work and through the thousands of people that I've spoken to over probably the last 10 years is that, you know, tolerance for risk seems to be one of those things that is instrumental to every single outcome in your life. You know, it's one of those things that 
you know, we, you know, don't learn in childhood that pretty much determines everything in adulthood. You know, if you want to get married, you take the risk of asking somebody out on a date. If you want to get a job, you take the risk of applying, knowing that you might get rejected. But one thing that happens, I think, is that our tolerance for risk as we get older, for good reason in many cases, starts to go down. Uh, but you seem to be a person who basically helps people not only manage risk, but also take risks. Because I know you mentioned, you know, making bold bets in, in the book, you know, later on, which we'll get into. Uh, how do you bring that back when you're older without, you know, losing your mind? <laughs> this is a great question and something I'm going through as we speak. Um, I, I think there are two sides of, of risk taking, right? Um, or of risk, right? There's the threat and there's the opportunity. And the question becomes, how do you link those two? How do you uh, use your understanding of, of probability or that the way that probability is distributed in the situation you're in today uh, to make a bigger bet while actually taking lower risk, right? The way that you you know, if you spend time in casinos, you know, what you rapidly learn is that the, the, your strategy at the, the poker table is, is different than your strategy at the roulette table. And what you want to do is really step back and make sure you understand the rules of the game before you play it. Um, you want to make sure you, you, you pick the right strategy. And as you get older, I think that's the thing you get better at doing is, you know, through the, 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 you know, training, you know, what, what you can do in book learning and repeated success and failure, you know, you learn how to take these bigger bets uh, with lower risk. And I think that's the, the key is learning that, that skill of metacognition, right? What, what do we know about what's in front of us? How do we move from kind of the, the two dimensional view of the playing field to a more three dimensional view? Mm hmm. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting you brought that up because there's, you know, one quote in particular that, you know, struck me, which will, you know, make a, a perfect transition to talk about the book. And it was about, you know, the financial investment in higher education and whether or not it makes sense uh, anymore. Because, you know, I went to college in 1996 at Berkeley where there's no question that, you know, a college degree from a school like that was going to open doors. And that whole narrative has changed substantially over the last decade. And given the work that you do, given that you're really a futurist, when you think about education in particular, you know, for people who are listening to this who are parents who have children, what would you say to them? Like, what are the things they need to be thinking about in terms of preparing their kids for the future of the workforce? I think there are three things to be really taking into consideration, right? The first is the importance of the social network. Right now, we're in this Zoom world where for some reason we believe that you can get things done uh, with people you don't know uh, in high-risk situations on Zoom. Um, You take a look at a company like Amazon, uh, Amazon Web Services, they're supposed to grow 70% this year. The people who are doing that 70% growth, they've never met each other. Now, how do you, how do you take high risk without ever having actually spent time together? You know, I think about, and I think that's one of the things that uh, college, especially elite universities do, is they create those lifelong social bonds. Um, I think that's really important at the end of the day, right? The enlightenment can say whatever they want. We're still animals. And I know what happens when my dog looks at my iPad and she gets interested for about 30 seconds and walks away. You know, (laughs) if we can't, uh, if we can't somehow sniff each other's butts, right? Like that link doesn't happen in the same kind of way. I think that's a really important first point. The second point, um, is around cultural uh, pieces. So since 
the end of World War II, right? Culture is really centered around the United States. Um, you know, globally, it's been the dominant culture. Moving into 2030, I think one of the real questions is, does it continue to be? As you start to see, you know, it's slowed down probably, but as you start to see the continued rise of the middle class in China, the continued rise of the middle class in Southeast Asia, and obviously, you know, the explosion in India, right? What's really clear to me is that global culture is moving from West to East. Are your people, are your kids, are they preparing for that? Are they building into that way of looking at the world, that way of doing things? Because if they aren't, if they can't transition between the two worlds, they're going to have a real problem moving forward. And then the third piece is about technical skills, right? We get so obsessed with STEM and like, are our kids learning how to program and you know, we're seeing the, you know, the death knell of liberal arts degrees and, and all of this stuff. And, and what we forget is that is you start to see the explosion of neural nets, as you start to see the explosion of, of automation, you know, many of the technical things that we learn in school uh, become irrelevant. One of my mentors, uh, Marvin Minsky, who was one of the fathers of artificial intelligence, he said to our class one day, uh, you know, what's the most useless degree on the planet? A degree in computer science. By definition, it will be completely <laughs> integrated by the time you leave. And so the yeah. question is, why do you want a computer science degree from MIT? And the answer mm -hmm. is they aren't teaching you how to code. They're teaching you what's called epistemology. They're teaching you mm -hmm. uh, the study of knowledge, how to know new things. And there are yeah. really four major ways that we do that. And we talk about uh, them in the book. And we, we kind of hide this because it's super geeky. Um, but there, there's deductive thinking, right? This is what a lawyer does. There's in, which is like, how do you take the known universe of facts and, and uh, work through logic to figure out what, uh, what's true? Uh, the second is inductive thinking. This is how a scientist works, right? Given all of the body of knowledge that's available, what's most likely, right? So one is absolute truth. One is likelihood. The third is abductive thinking. So this is uh, like what Sherlock Holmes does, right? And he says, okay, so we have all of these facts on the table. I've done those first two things. But what if some of those facts turn out to be not true? Or what if other information came to light? How would that change my opinion? Right. So he's, he's starting to look at counterfactual issues. And then the fourth is what's called Bayesian reasoning. And this is the idea that uh, we can stack up probabilities and through um, through logic, we can say, OK, well, if this thing's 10 percent true to 40 percent true and this thing's 30 percent to 20 percent true or whatever, and we, we link these things all together, uh, you know, what happens? What's the aggregate of all of these? What's the range of possibility if we if we kind of push and pull all these levers? And that's how you do things like a lot of things like climate modeling. Uh, it's how a lot of artificial intelligence works. And that's the fourth major skill. And so what you're trying to teach your kids in school uh, is how to learn how to do those four things. Because those are the base 
skills, everything else, right? We talked a lot about soft skills, right? How do you work in different cultures? How do you make sure that you know the right people? How do you learn to network? Um, but the second thing is how do you, how do you learn to learn? And that's going to be the most important skill of the next decade. And I get really concerned when we start talking about STEM and, and all of this stuff uh, and how we don't need liberal arts. You know, what we've got to remember is mathematics is a branch of philosophy, right? Uh, epistemology is a branch of philosophy. The way we teach philosophy, right, is both through philosophy class and some through coding and programming and whatnot, but also uh, by reading Shakespeare, right? By, by learning about how you, how other people have dealt with learning history by learning about how other people have dealt with the unknown. And I think we're, we're at a huge risk today as we start trying to get our kids to be more technical and start trying to turn, you know, liberal arts schools like Stanford into computer science trade schools, um, that, that we aren't generating the next big leaders. We're Greek, generating a, a, a nation of small leaders. You know, it's funny you brought up the the sort of degree becoming obsolete because I was you know, at Berkeley uh, between 96, 96 and 2000. And you know, for the most part, everybody's computer science degree was outdated by the time they graduated. I mean, just to you know, give people an idea of how different the world was at the time, uh, you know, a lot of the tech companies in the Bay Area would come to recruit computer science students from Berkeley. And there was one company who never had anybody at their table, Apple, which is mm -hmm. absurd to think now. Uh, but you know, I, I think the thing that I started to see over the last 20 years or so is as a non-computer science person who, you know, wanted to do all sorts of things was this sort of gap between creativity and technology that started to become narrower and narrower. You know, I just got the new iPhone 13 and I could not believe the things that it's capable of in terms of video. Uh, you know, I remember Elisa Gansky, who founded Ophoto, told me it took $100 million in funding to build Ophoto. Now a kid could sit on their laptop over the course of a weekend and build that at home. And, you know, Julian Smith, uh, who's a founder of Breather, has, you know, been a guest here. He told me the, the thing that you should always be asking yourself is, what does this make possible that wasn't before? And I started to just notice that it's no longer, you know, your you know, technical knowledge of how to use a tool, but what you can imagine is possible with it that really gives you power. Yeah, I, I think that that idea of what's possible that wasn't before, right? How do you ask those, those uh, in, in the framework I talked before, I talked about, before, excuse me, in the frame that I talked about before, how do you ask those sort of abductive questions, those, those Sherlock Holmes questions? I think that's the most important skill today. And yeah. as more tools become available, it will become increasingly so. I was talking yesterday or on Saturday with Nolan Bushnell, who's the mm -hmm. I've talked to him before. founder of Atari. Yeah. Uh, just amazing, amazing guy. He's uh, been involved in founding, I think, something like 100 companies. Uh, he he's only has 20 or so listed on his, on his Wikipedia, but I, I think he deducts the failures. Um, mm -hmm. the, the point is... You know, I was talking to him and he's like, it is so weird, right? This is the most technical guy on the planet, right? Um, and he's like, I don't program anymore. I don't have to write code anymore. It's all there. I just click it together. 
what does that mean? Like when you don't have to be like a, a Nolan level technologist to build Nolan level technologies. I mean, that's, that's mind blowing and that's the world that we're moving into. And that's why we've got to have these bigger picture skills, right? The, the technology is a democratizing force. And, and what that means is that uh, the capabilities of people at the next level up are suddenly you know, devolved. But that also means that the decision-making skills of kings, you know, of global leaders, they now need to be pushed down, you know, deeper into our organizations, deeper into our societies. Because with great power, I mean, I'm about to go Spider-Man on this, but with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> you know, the fact that you can use a tool uh, doesn't mean that that you can use it in the same way, that you can act in the same way that you used to. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that makes a perfect segue to getting into the the content of the book. But uh, what uh, in the world, uh, you know, in your own career trajectory led you to this perspective? Uh, because like I said, I mean, to me, this was one of the things I knew we would never be able to cover the level of depth that you went into in, in one hour. Uh, so, you know, I mean, what's the trajectory that led you to where you're at to writing this book? So I've... Um... I was the managing partner, a CEO of product innovation firms that brought about 350 products to market over the last 25 years. And about 120 of those are still on the market. Uh, if you know anything about new product development, that is a statistic that is impossible. Uh, it's, it's so good. And so the question became, well, why? What? What were we do? What was I doing differently? What were we doing differently? Like, it, why were we seeing a future that would exist where other uh, people, other competitors weren't? And that's that's what the book is really about. And it's about you know we talked about this develop personal development cycle. You know, a lot of my career to date has really been about trying to be kind of the rock star, right? Like, how do you? Mm become the the coolest kid in the room how do you become the most important person in the room and i think where it's going and why i wrote this book is is a shift in my life to how do i become the host how do i enable other people to do these things uh to be more repeatedly successful because mm -hmm. i think that's the real usefulness that we have in the world as we start to get older uh going back to your question of how do you avoid going insane from perpetually taking bigger risks it's it's how yeah. do you allow other people to make bigger bets while taking less mm. well you open the book by saying the collision of 10 rapidly moving economic technological and social undercurrents will cause many of this decade's rogue waves while the scale of their impact is knowable their energy is now only only now rising to the surface if you want to create your own fate when they hit you you will need to learn how to spot and track them have honest conversations about their implications for your business and position yourself to maximize your resilience and advantage. So can you talk about what those, you know, 10 undercurrents are and then, you know, for our, the sake of our audience, define a rogue wave? Yeah, well, let's let's start with defining a rogue wave and then we'll talk about the undercurrents. So you've heard about a black swan, right? These incalculable risks that fall out of nowhere and um, uh, just destroy everything. The reality you might have noticed is that whenever leaders aren't paying attention, they claim it was a black swan, right? 
the pandemic, that wasn't a black swan event. It was highly knowable. It was increasingly likely. 2008, the financial crash, that wasn't a black swan event. It was highly knowable. It was increasingly likely. Um, September 11th, that wasn't a black swan event. The security establishment was screaming their heads off, saying that this was an increasing risk. Whether it was an increasing risk on that day, well, that was a surprise. But whether it was an increasing risk, um, all of these things were near inevitabilities. And they were inevitability, near inevitabilities within a certain time frame. And we just weren't paying attention. And so what's a rogue wave, right? If you, if most things aren't black swans, there's something else. And there wasn't a really good word for this, for this idea of compound volatility, these individually manageable uh, waves of change that stack up in a certain time in a certain place to become unmanageable. And that's what a rogue wave is. It's, it's a, it's an, a series of individually manageable trends that stack up to become unmanageable. And we've all experienced these in our lives. You've experienced them in your career. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you take a look at the next decade, there are uh, 10 major trends that we lay out in the book that are both highly knowable and highly trackable. Uh, and 10 probably too much to talk about in this moment, yeah. but uh, we, you know, they really break down to, th- to three categories. Um, uh, technological change, right? What's going to be the impact of things like artificial intelligence? What's going to be the impact of the increasing cost of producing new semiconductors? Um, and and how how will things like that shift the the nature of of technology? Uh, and and how will they impact the the next generation of industries? The second is economic change. So in a country like the United States, the vast majority of the economy is tied to consumption, right? It's tied to consumers. So what does it mean when things like uh, the population inversion that we've uh, recently seen, that the population's getting older? Well, it means that people buy a lot less uh, uh, Jordache jeans or whatever's cool that week because, you know, when you're 65, that's not cool. Uh, they probably buy a lot less houses. Uh, they mm-hmm. probably buy uh, um, a lot less educations. Um, and so that drives, uh, that that limits um, the flow of money through the economy. At the same time, they probably pressure, people increasingly pressure the social safety net. The, the cost of, of healthcare as a percentage of the economy of GDP goes up. Um and and the number of people who are retired versus working goes up. So the, the size of the tax base uh, for, for salary goes down. This is a radical change. This is a radical shift, and it's going to impact the future of the United States. And this, is, this isn't just happening in the United States. This is happening in all of the 20 largest economies in the world at the same time. So we're going to see a a real rethinking of the nature of economics coming out of COVID. Um, We're seeing a change in the social contract, right? And and social changes. So if you take a look in the last two or three years, right? uh, uh, Brexit, the, the, the yellow jacket protests in, in France, the, uh, the umbrella protests in Hong Kong, the uh, the upending of the governance in Chile, where, by the way, the the uh, what's called the Gini coefficient, the the income disparity, which was one of the major drivers, 
uh, is about the same as it is in San Francisco Bay Area today. Right. <laughs> so so, so yeah. the, the, the out, out of nowhere, and I was there like the week before talking to government leaders saying, you're going to have social unrest if you don't deal with the number of things. And they looked at me like I had three heads, right? These things, they, they pop out of nowhere. And these redefinitions of the social contract, they pop out of nowhere. What, what's happened in Chile is they've had to rewrite the constitution to satisfy the protesters. And mm-hmm. we'll see if that's enough. Yeah. I, um, the, so, so we're seeing all of these changes happen simultaneously but we look at them one headline at a time. We've got to look at them in aggregate. We've got to look at that compound volatility as opposed yeah. to the individual changes. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny you bring up the Gini coefficient because I remember I did a six-month study abroad in Brazil when I was uh, in business school. This was 2008. And at that time, I think Brazil had one of the highest Gini coefficients in the world. And I'm pretty sure we're kind of on par with them at this point. I, I would imagine it, it's distributed differently around the country, um, yeah. uh, but it's not getting better. And, and one of the going down back to that, one of the reasons you want to look at these things together as opposed to separately, one of the major reasons that the Gini coefficient is going up in the United States is, you know, is populations get older, parents die. Mm-hmm. Um, and some, you know, 50 year olds as we're, you know, 60 year olds they suddenly come into tremendous wealth. They end up with two lifetimes of wealth, yeah. you know, especially coming out of COVID with all of the stock market money and everything. And so you end up with people who are older, you know, some who are living in tremendous opulence and some who are living in tremendous poverty. And that's relatively new in this country, uh, that, that, that diversity of experience of age. 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mm, yeah. Well, let's do this. Let's get into the entire concept of the rogue framework. And you know, since I get the privilege of picking your brain, let's use my business as the example, uh, just so I could kind Sounds of great. You know, have a tactical and, and practical takeaway. Because like I said, I think that, you know, one of the things that struck me most was that we got hit by that rogue wave with, you know, the Apple glitch that none of us planned for in Maine. I remember our ad sales team said, Trini, there's nothing we can do until this gets fixed. And it made me really think about, okay, how do you mitigate against that? So let's actually go through this. Like, let's say that we want to apply this framework to the future of Unmistakable and use it to, you know, grow our podcast. And you go into a number of concepts. Let's start with, you know, the reality test. Yeah. Okay. So, um, if you want to look at any situation, if you want to project the future, uh, the first thing you need to deal with is what's called accumulation error. If you have a wrong assessment, if you're off by 10%, you know, in the first, uh, in your first assessment and you, you next year, you, you do it again and you're off by 10% again and so on and so forth. You can off very quickly be off by a hundred percent, right. In any projection of the future. And so what you want to do is really get down deep and say, okay, well, what is the baseline truth, right? What do we know? What's our foundation here? And the first thing you want to do is figure out what's your reconnaissance method, right? How are you going to understand what you can know, what you can't know, uh, and what you know that you, um, what you don't know that you can, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, those are like the first three questions. And, and the quest, the, a lot of people like don't really get, rigorous about this and they, they, they answer a whole bunch of small, easy questions, but they don't really increase their knowledge or, or, or what they call shrink the search area. Mm. So the first thing you want to do is ask like, what is the question that if I answered it, 
would shrink the search area, the, the, the number of unknowns the most yeah. and start there and then look at, you know, we talked earlier about inductive, abductive, deductive and Bayesian reasoning. You know, mm-hmm. What combination of those different ways of looking at the world? How do I use logic? How do I use probability? Uh, and how do I use conjecture or what's called counter counterfactuals um, to figure out what what is that baseline truth? What what types of questions am I answering to get down to to what is true? Mm-hmm. Um, so when I think about. Uh, your business, right? The first thing I would ask is, okay, so we have this disruption. Uh, the most important first question is, what's the shortest and the longest it could last? Yeah. Right. And uh, the second is, do I have enough cash flow and do I have enough resilience with my uh, listeners to survive that range? Hmm. Um, the next question would be, uh, you know, one next question might be, you know, are there ways to, you know, uh, maintain cash flow, uh, and to, uh, drive listeners to other channels that, um, that will be successful for me. So I'm guessing maybe you didn't have the majority of your listeners on a newsletter. Um, yeah, so I mean, we you, do, but so uh, can, it, you know, it's so that funny. You can yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because as I was going through my Q4, you know, sort of goal setting, I thought, okay, you know, now there are subscription podcasts available that are ad free and, you know, Substack is, you know, one of those places like this could be a way to mitigate, you know, that risk in the future. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, so how do you, how do you, you know, one of the things we talk about later in the book and, and so we're now getting kind of out of that real framework idea, but how do you yeah. time sequence and hit, how do you change the order of events so that you can uh, either by changing the timing, changing the sequencing or hedging so that you have some kind of counter cyclical, um, uh, bet or investment that'll offset the the risk, and so yeah. moving toward a subscription basis is really interesting because it doesn't matter if your people, yeah, you know, the, the 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 fitness, the healthcare fitness center model is the best idea ever, right? Um, <laughs> January first, everyone's going to lose weight. January sixth, no one ever goes to the fitness center again, but yeah. they're being paid for the next twelve months. It's a it's the best business model ever, right? So yeah. so. You know, if you have some component to, of, of that kind of thing to, to stretch out your cash flow, it's huge. Let's talk about this whole idea of observe because it, it really, you know, I'm not a data scientist or, you know, a market research yeah. expert, but the yeah. way you talked about, you know, observing systems, looking at higher order effects and really kind of being, you know, intelligent, you know, about the way you do this, one of the things yeah. you say is simply gathering information at random and that hoping to make sense of it afterward might work when there are only a few dozen possible solutions, but what if there are hundreds or thousands or millions? And mm. it kind of made me think about, okay, then you know, what is the right way to interpret, for example, survey data that I collect from my email list? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's just pop back to the last thing for a second because it's yeah. going to tie to this. Uh, so we talked about in, in, in the real framework, there are four steps. There's reality testing, uh, there's evidence collection, uh, there's analyzing 
the the range of options, and then there's assessing likelihood, and we talk about the best practices for doing all of those, um, and that gets you through you know three of the four major ways of knowing: uh, uh, deductive, inductive, abductive. The the fourth one is what's called Bayesian reasoning, and is how do you stack up a range of probabilities? How and how do you use um, what's called control systems theory or every field has a different flavor of this, but how, how do you use what you can know about how information needs to move from one, uh, one, uh, node to another, whether it's, um, a warehouse or a piece of the economy or, uh, you know, f- components of, of, of your supply chain, um, so that you can figure out earlier on, you know, what will cause the heart attack right mm-hmm. because some 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 screw up in you know northern northern chengdu uh you know that that manufacturer is down so we know in 3 months we're going to have a problem at walmart yeah um so so there are that's kind of what what i propose is how do you observe the system how do you do bayesian reasoning more effectively and a lot of it's just kind of stepping back taking the god view you know and saying okay well what do we know about uh, kind of the map of our system. Where where are the nodes? Where are the key pieces of of where where does information collect, or where does uh, where do goods collect, or where does value collect in our system? And then how does it move, and where does it move to other places uh, in the system? You can really quickly uh, draw diagrams uh, like this, and it's probably the best way of thinking through it. Um. And I, I wish I had a visual in front of me to to share with you, but um, they're 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 kind of spaghetti diagrams, and there's a bunch of them in the book. Yeah, uh, I saw as, that as examples. Yeah, it made uh, me think I could do a mind map that just had endless amounts of tree, you know branches off of it. Yeah, yeah, it can get out of control really quickly, right? And so, and so is is a is a human who's running a small business. You know, you you really want to stylize these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and say, okay, well, where are the, you know, uh, stock flow models are, are a good yeah. example that, that you can find easily <laughs> on, on the, on the, on the internet yeah. to type in stock flow diagram right now. Um, and, and you can start to see, uh, you know, you could do this for your business. You could do this for your life. You could do this for your industry. You could do this for, for your customers, uh, to map out, uh, what are, you know, what does the system look like? And if something changes, Right in that system, what would accelerate, what would decelerate, what would, uh, what would explode? Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking about, uh, Nolan Bushnell the other day, or, I'm sorry, earlier today. And, and he said something fascinating to me, which is, yeah, the Atari 2600 was the first home video game system. And it had these cartridges that you would jack into it. And he was really concerned about getting this out and cost reduction and so on and so forth. So he got, he got this, this crazy little game thing out and it was huge at Christmas or whatever. And it became massive. And he ended up with this huge installed base of, of technology of this platform, but to save five cents, he had decided he didn't want to put two uh, extra pins on uh, the connectivity between the cartridges uh, which were kind of the, if you think about it as razors and blades, they were kind of like the razors. They were the replaceable thing. And uh, I'm sorry, the blades, they were the replaceable thing. And, and then the Atari 2600 computer, that was the, yeah, um, that was the razor. That was the 
the, the, the thing you bought that was expensive that you kept. Mm-hmm. And because he didn't spend five cents on these, these little pins to connect these two things, uh, is the cost of memory decreased? He wasn't able to put read, write memory on the cartridge. And so, uh, he was never able to upgrade the original system. So when you played a game and you took the cartridge out, uh, you couldn't actually put it back in and play the game where you were, you know, yesterday, uh, or you couldn't, uh, put more information on the cartridge or, or upgrade the whole system by upgrading the cartridges. Moore's law made the cost of computation less expensive and the cost of semiconductors less expensive. My point is if he'd taken that systems level view, he would have seen if this thing is successful, that five cents will mean that my, my installed base, my, 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 Atari 2600s will last for five years instead of two or three. And so I can actually monetize those in a massive way uh, because all of these other things are going to change in the system that make uh, where I put my compute, where I put my memory, uh, uh, where I want to put it different. And and we see this repeatedly, right? We build these things. uh, I worked with a company I mean, we've all worked with companies um, that are really excited about their new technology. Uh, and then Google or Apple comes out and they decide to make it free. Mm. Right. And then all of a sudden the world, their world implodes. And yet these are knowable things, right? That, that a large company with an interest in X, Y, and Z uh, with a huge platform of all of your customers will want to make this free. And so, yeah. How do you respond? We, we, we try to avoid getting overwhelmed. And I think one of the real lessons is, you know, you can't protect your ship from everything. More armor doesn't necessarily make you stronger, right? Yeah. You will get overwhelmed. The question is what happens next, right? No matter how high you build the dike in New Orleans, like New Orleans has always flooded. New Orleans will always flood. The questions, what happens next? Yeah. It, it kind of reminds me of, of, you know, what's happened to Clubhouse, you know, with the minute Clubhouse started to really gain traction, Twitter and Facebook launched audio rooms. Yeah, of course. Why wouldn't they? Yeah. So let's talk about this idea of generate your future, because I think that the thing that struck me most um, that you talked about was, you know, not 10x, but 100x thinking it, it, you know, it made me even rethink, you know, my quarterly goals. I'm like, okay, we got a thousand podcasts in the archive, uh, you know, and I, I realized one other thing is when I started to look at it from first principles, I was like, what is this all made of? What are the raw materials? And I came to the conclusion that the raw materials are words and those raw materials can be repurposed and repackaged in thousands of different ways. And you know, mm-hmm. the metaphor that I you know came back to was the metaphor of an apple tree that you know Julian Smith told me. He said you can do one of two things with an apple tree: you can sell apples, or you know Jason Fried has this great post on the Thirty Seven Signals blog about selling your byproducts. And if you have an apple tree, inevitably there's going to be byproducts, you know, yeah. which could be selling apples to Whole Foods to you know let them bake apple pies to you know a vodka company to make apple vodka. And it just made me realize it's like the person who recognized the byproducts of their system can extract far more value out of that system. Well, there's, there's, um, I live up near Napa, uh, in the wine country in California. And, um, when the fires hit out here, 
last year or the year before. Most of the um, wine growers, they, they tossed their grapes. I mean, they were smoky. They, they weren't worth anything. Um, one of them said, hey, what about smoky cognac? That'd be amazing. So they took their off grapes and they turned them into this incredibly desirable thing. Um, I think about my friend's uh, family farm in Ohio. And one of the things they do is they've got this, uh, uh, they do this dining series, or at least pre-COVID they did. Um, And they take basically extra produce, you know, uh, from the farm, right? Say there'd been too much asparagus, right? And they'd, they'd figure out how to, how to just do amazing things with asparagus. And then they'd take the scraps from that dinner and they would use it to feed the pigs. And then the pigs would be part of the, you know, part of the next dinner. And so they had this complete cycle where there was almost zero waste. It was yeah. just unbelievable what was going on there. Um, and so I think we need to start thinking more ecologically, right? We were talking about observing your system, right? How do you, how do you really look at that system and say, okay, where are those opportunities? Where can we, you know, if, if they aren't available within the ecosystem today, can we, can we build them out? Can we create them? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think most importantly, you know, how do we have a back of pocket plan? Right. When we know, like the one thing we know is that we will get overwhelmed. Right. What happens next? And not necessarily how do you have it all planned out? Right. But how do you have a back at back of pocket plan for dealing with that? Uh, when I think about the French uh, at the end of World War One, uh, Maginot, who was the defense minister, he was obsessed that the Germans would not invade uh uh, over the German border again, and he builds out what's called the Maginot Line, which is this massive berm that goes from Switzerland, you know, to to um, uh, to Luxembourg, I believe, and uh, tries to keep the Germans out. And it was really effective at doing that. The Germans didn't really affect attack the Maginot Line; um, they just went around it. Mm-hmm. And what would have been the better answer for the cost of building this massive fortification? They could have bought 5,000 tanks, literally put a tank every 300 feet across their entire border with Germany. Uh, And when the Germans moved, they could have moved 5,000 tanks. Um, That would have been a much more effective strategy. Hmm. And so the question is, you know, not only how do you defend yourself, how do you increase your armor? Um, but how do you increase your flexibility when the world doesn't do what you expect it to? Yeah. So I think you kind of touched on the whole idea of, um, you know, in some way uncoupling from threats. But um, one of the things I wondered about, you know, on threats was this whole idea of trigger points, because I think that the thing that struck me most, probably another quote that really stood out was this idea of, uh, looking for small changes that lead to exponential results. Right. And I thought about that in terms of, okay, if I'm looking through podcast download data, or if I'm just looking at the business general, like where are those in my own business? How do I find those? 
I think it goes back to this idea of, of building a systems model of your organization, right? We talked about stock flow diagrams. There are, there are lots of other uh, variations of this. Uh, in this a whole world of what's called control systems theory. Um, uh, there's a guy named Jay Forrester that you can look up who kind of mm-hmm. founded a lot of this stuff. Um, and I think that's a really good way to start looking at your situation, right? How do you stop looking at the mountains from ground level and how do you start looking at it from God view and, and understanding that the larger dynamic at play. And once you do that, you know, you can start to see the Rube Goldberg system that's in front of you. Uh, mm. And you can start to figure out, okay, well, why does, you know, this, this thing keeps, you know, going off and then causing everything else to happen. But, you know, the world is not a perpetual motion machine, right? Um, so we know that energy came from somewhere where up the system did it come from and what can we know about that? What, what can we know about what that trigger is? You know, whether mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, you take a look at, um, the automotive industry, what we hear in the news all the time right now is, Oh, the semiconductors, Oh, the semiconductors, uh, and, and they're driving the cost of, 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 automotive automobiles they're they're limiting the amount that can be produced in 2012 uh toyota got hit by the daiichi nuclear power plant the fukushima disaster and it upended their supply chain and these are the biggest baddest leanest manufacturers on the planet i mean these guys invented agile manufacturing they invented you know just in time that they they like you, th- you think you think that you know the 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 lean software companies are lean. These guys were doing it in the seventies, um, and they looked at the system and they said, "This is crazy, right? Why is like some widget from you know Fukushima? Like, why is that upending our global supply chain? What are the you know limited number of components that we need to have in buffer?" Right, so that we can uh, continue to produce when when a disaster hits. And one of those things that they that they identified was semiconductors. So they bought a six month supply of semiconductors, and they didn't actually purchase them. I think this is important to realize. Uh, in many cases, what they did was they found a third party who was willing to buy them. They contracted guaranteeing they would buy them within a certain time period. But but they didn't have to hold them in inventory, and it wasn't really a cost aside from a couple percentage points, you know, of of interest. Um, and so in 2016, when Taiwan, which is where many of the world semiconductors are produced, got hit by a natural disaster, Toyota floated straight through. Many of the other companies on the planet, they were deeply impacted by this. When COVID hit, you know, many of the other companies were decimated by the semiconductor issues that 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 uh, were caused by covid in taiwan um toyota they had a bad year like everybody else but they floated straight through and they actually became the largest uh, automotive manufacturer on the planet i believe last year as a result of this so you know i think the the lesson here is you know, what are those trigger points and what are the small decisions you can make, you know, a period of time before 
that allow you to take advantage of those when everybody else is capsized, just trying to bail out their boat, right? Because at the end of the day, that's your blue ocean, right? That that's your, that's your opportunity. It's not in the good times when you're fighting for, for percentage points. Uh, the real opportunity is in the bad times when everyone else is trying to bail out their, their boat and you're, you're, you're sailing and there's a lot of wind. Yeah. Uh, that's when you want to play. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it was in uh, Scott Galloway's book. He he actually talked post Corona. He talked about how some of the you know biggest businesses and major moments in history were all you know moments proceed you know following a crisis. Yeah, I mean, you know, you take a look at uh, you know how Amazon and Zoom have done this year, right? Like, yeah. Why did Microsoft not capture all of the voice market? Right. And, and the teleconference market. I mean, they had the contracts, they had the, mm. the, the, the technology, they had the sales teams, they had the government relations to scale this globally. Like, why was it that Zoom took the cake? Yeah. I think there's a lot of lessons there about how to think uh, systemically about about these 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 systems and how to put them in place when the opportunity comes. Yeah. Um, you, you think about World War Two. Right. Like World War One and World War Two, uh, the U.S. wasn't really a significant player, but they came in late with excess capacity and they took the cake. You know, the reason that we've had such a great century after World War Two um, is really because everybody else decided to bomb themselves into oblivion and, and we just took their debt. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, I know you got to get going. So um, let's finish um, with this whole idea of experiments, because I, you know, when I was thinking about experiments, like, okay, you know, typically what is, what do we do as online marketers? We, you know, run A-B tests, we, you know, change copy. Um, so what does that look like for, for people like us who are running these sort of smaller businesses or, you know, uh, like media properties? Yeah. So, so what we've been secretly talking about through, through this whole episode is what's called the rogue method. So how do you real, uh, are reality tests? Uh, how do you owe, observe a system? How do you G generate the range of possible futures? Uh, how do you, you uncouple your threats from your opportunities? And then how do you E, how do you create a portfolio of experiments? And I think mm -hmm. one of the things that really uh, many companies fail at is thinking about ex their, their investments in the future in the right way. Uh, when you think about a company like General Motors, they've, you know, you can argue whether they're innovative or not, but I can tell you when you take a look at their investment spend over the last hundred years, they're an innovative company and they made a better car, a better car, a better car, a better car, maybe not the best car, but a better car. Um, until one day they made an electric vehicle that goes 140,000 miles without a tune up. And Mary Barra, the woman behind that is now the CEO this is a problem because their entire business is built on selling a car to a dealer who makes their free cash flow by maintaining that car for three years and then selling a new car to that same customer every three years. The only problem with this is when you sell a car and you don't see the customer for a decade because the car doesn't need a tune up, this entire business model implodes. And so what do you do about that? You should have, a decade ago, 15 years ago, been looking at a portfolio of experiments, right? How do you create the right combination of, of high risk, medium risk, and low risk 
experiments or high, 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 medium and low payoff experiments, uh, just like you would your investment portfolio so that no matter what happens, you're getting the right payoffs at the right time, the right combination of payoffs. And so no one individual thing that you're doing uh, is going to define your success or your failure, right? So if your financial model is based exclusively on podcasts and all of a sudden podcasts go to free or all of a sudden someone comes into your space and, you know, uh, Reed Hoffman comes into your space and says, I've got a hundred million dollars and, you know, 4 trillion followers and thanks. Um, you know, what's your plan B? How do you take advantage of that? So when I came into COVID, you know, I had a back of pocket idea. I was, uh, I'd, I'd been an executive at HP. I was working as an advisor, uh, for board advisor for a number of organizations. Um, and I was making most of my money actually as a public speaker. I'd, I'd backfilled once, once I left HP, I'd backfilled my, uh, most of my executive salary, public speaking crazily enough. Um, the world was frothy back in 2019. Um, but I knew that there was going to be a financial crash. And I wrote a book, uh, it was initially called after the crash. It's now called rogue waves conveniently. And I brought it to publishers in 2019 and they said, nah, that's not going to happen. You know, the world's not going to, the world's not going to get up and did like that. Um, but I had that in the back of my pocket. So in 2020, when chaos hit, I was the person who was able to walk into the room and say, here's the book you're looking for today. Because I knew, you know, I didn't know what day chaos was going to hit, but I knew that my speaking business would be impacted. And that would be the very moment when people would want exactly that book. And so I created a situation where uh, I had, uh, I'd been doing experiments, I'd been making investments that were counter-cyclical so that they balanced each other out. And I think that's one of the really important lessons when we start thinking about growth in our companies, not how do we grow the thing we have, but how do we make sure that we're, we're, we have a large enough, a diverse enough garden that no matter what happens, no matter what the year we're going to have bounty. Wow. Uh, well, like I told you from having read the book, this is a really deep rabbit hole um, that we could go down for hours. So uh, I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Hmm. Clarity. Clarity of intent. So I had... Um, I first learned this. I first noticed this at um, missing the fellow's name. So, so sorry about that. But there's a Japanese sculptor, and he had a museum in New York. And I looked at uh, Asamu Naguchi, and I looked at his sculptures, and I, I hadn't really understood them. And then I went to the museum and I saw these sculptures in the context, right? And, and they were placed, they were designed, they were built, they were placed so that not only did they make sense in the context of the room, but they were distinctive in the context of the massive blue wall uh, that was across the street, uh, hiding a salvage yard. 
and and in this this red sculpture this reddish sculpture against that blue background it snapped and what i realized there was the clarity of his intent right he had designed that thing not to look good in a photograph not to look good in another museum he had designed it to look good to be distinctive in that museum at that place at that time and it blew my mind and so the question when you take a look at the world when you look at how to be unmistakable is what's the context and that's really what my book's about how do you make sense how do you be distinctive how do you take advantage of change of the new reality that you're going to be in tomorrow Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, the book, your work and everything else that you're up to? This is so fantastic. Thank you for, for having me. Uh, you can find me. The best place is on LinkedIn. Follow me on LinkedIn. That's where I, I push out, uh, write for, I write for Forbes, Fast Company, uh, Inc a broad range of publications. That's the fastest place to find me. Uh, and my website is Jonathan at Jonathan com. You can find me there if you want to email me and continue the conversation. I love chatting with interesting people. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that, 
and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.